This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark on the Bigger Picture with me, Uma Pagan and Pagan. Pagan. Joining me on the show today is Canadian author Janie Chang. She's got a brand new book that's coming out later this month. It's called Dragon Springs Road, and it's a wonderful piece of historical fiction that explores the often ignored lives of Eurasian children in China at the dawn of the 20th century. Hello, my name is Janie Chang, and I'm the author of Dragon Springs Road a historical novel set in pre-revolutionary China. Janie, before we start, I would love it if you could tell people in your own words what Dragon Springs Road is all about. Dragon Springs Road, the main character is a young girl who's been abandoned by her mother. And she starts off being really disadvantaged because not only is she a girl in 1908 China, where girls are not highly valued, but she's also an orphan. And she's also biracial. And the story is about how she tries to survive and, you know, determine her identity and what she wants to do and get out of life against all the obstacles that are set against her. It's very much a story about racism, but also about identity and friendship and loyalty. And there's a supernatural twist that's woven into the story. I love supernatural twists. Um, but you, you write about this incredibly interesting history and one that a lot of people don't know about, which is this discrimination of Eurasians, in particular Eurasian children. Um, there, there, is this, there is this derogatory saying over here in Malaysia, unclaimed by the West and unwanted by the East. Oh my goodness. I didn't realize that um, a saying like that still existed in you know, in a place like Malaysia, which I think of as being very cosmopolitan, it is. It is. I think it's a it's a very old saying. I don't think many people use it anymore. But I remember growing up as a child and hearing people of a certain generation say that about Eurasians. And I was curious where you came upon this story and why you found it fascinating. Well, um, I had done some reading um, in my research for my previous novel called Three Souls. And I ran across mention of a woman named um, Luo Jialing, and she was half Chinese and half French from Shanghai. And she found her way into a corner of Chinese history when she married a man named Silas Hardoon, who was a Sephardic Jew who was, quote unquote, the wealthiest man east of the Suez Canal. Wow. Yeah. And so I, I and between them, they adopted 11 children um, some Chinese, some mixed race, half of them they raised Buddhists and half of them they raised Jewish. Uh, so this got me um, interested in looking at mixed race children in Shanghai in this particular span of time, maybe maybe like 100 years um, just before the 1940s. And it turned out that, you know, the documentation that you could find about uh, Eurasian children and communities belong to people who were of middle class or wealthier, because, of course, they were the ones who had the leisure and the distinction and the literacy to have their lives documented. But the vast majority of Eurasian children were born to prostitutes. They were unclaimed by their European fathers, and they sort of, you know, fell through the cracks, as you said, 
unwanted and unacknowledged and without having family in a society where lineage is everything, um, they really had no place in society. And I started wondering, what would it be like to be such a child? And um, it was very hard turning up information, uh, historical research about this demographic, because, you know, nobody wrote very much about them. Nobody cared about them until a friend of mine suggested checking into records and diaries of missionaries, particularly missionary women of that era. And that's where I came across mention of setting up schools for Eurasian girls and how unfortunate it was. I mean, there was a very sad um, little snippet about um, we had to shut down this school because the Eurasian girls who came in and learned a bit of English when they graduated, they would, you know, go off and be mistresses to foreign men because they had language skills along with everything else. So, um, and when you are writing fiction, um, you want a lot of conflict because it creates tension and obstacles and situations which bring out um, the character's personality and how to overcome these difficulties. And I thought, well, this is a time um, in Chinese history and a situation that's just rife with conflict. So let's go for it. It's interesting, but not at all surprising. I would imagine that the vast number of records about these sorts of things would exist in the West when missionaries left, well, their colonial states, I suppose, and took those documentations back with them. It's true because a lot of the a lot of the reading that I did was from those missionary records, you know, so um, the, the China missions, China inland missions, I think they were called, you know, they would publish a yearbook of all their achievements for that year. So there were bits and pieces and there were um, memoirs of missionary women, um, and they talked about, um, you know, the living conditions there, the people, you know, especially the women and children that they had to deal with. But, you know, they were just, uh, Eurasian children were just such a footnote in history um, because there was a lot of racism. I think that even for the missionary women with all the goodwill in the world, it was a very racist time. And sometimes, um, you know, they felt sorry for these children, but at the same time, they were somewhat repulsed by them. I would say that um, the closest contemporary approximation that we have to this phenomena would be Korean-American orphans um, from the days when the milita U.S. military right, had a presence in Southeast Asia, and especially um, the children who are you know, half Black and half Asian have uh, been treated really, really badly. And it's interesting because we hear a lot more about that because of the sheer amount of film and literature that have been written and made about Korea and Vietnam during the war. But not, not very much has been written or made about Eurasian children in China. And this is, I would say this was, this was a phenomenon that probably spanned um, you know, a hundred years, maybe from the 1850s when Europeans first started, um, you know, making incursions into China, and then right until maybe the 1940s when there was still a European presence in China, and then after that, you know, all the you know the communists took over, 
um, Europeans or Westerners left China, and that just was a very abrupt cutoff point there. So I think that it was, like I said, they were just a footnote in history and very much ignored, maybe swept under the carpet, an embarrassment. Janie, I picked up Three Souls after they sent me Dragon Springs Road, and I, I read that as well. And and Three Souls was very much rooted in biography. It, it felt incredibly personal. It felt like something that you just needed to write, you know, that family history that's wrapped in fiction. I can only assume that Dragon Springs Road was easier to write for you? No, it was actually a little bit more difficult. Really? Um, yes. Well, you are right in that Three Souls it was inspired by the life of my grandmother and how, you know, all my life I've been haunted by how different the trajectories of our lives were because, you know, she was a couple of generations older and she probably was smarter than I was and a much better human being. And yet, you know, her very modest ambitions were squashed because she was a woman belonging to a certain class and not allowed to fulfill her ambitions. Um, And yes, you're very perceptive in that it was the story that I always knew would be the basis of my first novel. So there. The second, um, Dragon Springs Road, well, I found out later on that I suffered from the classic sophomore novel syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, every anguish, every moment of self-doubt was textbook classical. But um, I got through it, and my editors loved it even more than Three Souls. But I'm telling you, it was it was a horrific experience because you're so plagued with self-doubt. You're so you're wondering... Was I? Did I only ever have one story in me? Here are all these things that my editors, um, you know, cautioned me about in the first book. Am I making the same mistakes in the second one? On and on. <laughs> but surely, in writing Three Souls, you had to worry about your family reading it and how they'd interpret or perceive it. Was that ever a yeah. burden for you? No, because. I'm too chicken to write about um, family members who are still alive. They are, all, everyone in Three Souls is dead. Oh, that's very convenient. <laughs> yes. And in fact, um, my family was really pleased and very proud. We have, um, we have a long family history of, you know, scholarly and literary pursuits. And my brother actually said to me, you know, I'm really pleased with the way you wrote our grandfather into the story because in real life he was kind of a loser, but you made him a more sympathetic character in your book. So you were being respectful to our elders. I think that's one of the best things about being a writer and writing fiction. It's adding that layer of respectability and nuance to otherwise two-dimensional characters in real life. Mm. But, you know, at the same time, I re- I kind of besmirched another um, one of my relatives, uh, the sort of one of the uh, bad guys in Three Souls was actually based on uh, my grandmother's cousin, a man called Xu Chobei. And he was actually quite a good person. He was an intellectual. He um, studied in Russia. He translated... Um, works of Marx um, and, and Lenin into, into Chinese. He, and he was 
the first chairman of the Chinese Communist Party and a mentor to Mao Zedong. Wow. And he was executed by the nationalists. And he was actually a very good person. But in fiction, I turned, you know, I based his character on, on this person and he was more of a villain. So, J.D., talk to me about the North American literary market when it comes to Asian historical fiction. Can I call what you do historical fiction? Absolutely. I think of it as historical fiction with a twist of the supernatural because, well, just the way um, I heard my own fam- my family stories, there were so many stories that had to do with ghosts and the supernatural and dragons and so on. That Well, they're very know, they real to of, us. Yeah. And, and they just nose their way into the story and I can't help it. But what's the, what's the market like over there? Well... So here's the interesting thing. Um, I think that it's it's healthy because thanks to authors such as Amy Tan and Lisa C, there is um, interest, mainstream interest in stories about Asia and China and you know the lives of Chinese women. And I think that there's also um, interest in uh, by second generation uh, immigrants because I've had emails from. Chinese Americans who said, oh, you know, I was born and raised here. I know something about Chinese history because of my parents, but I learned so much from, you know, your book. So I think that there is um, healthy interest. But I think there is an overall problem in that publishers right now are so cautious. You know, the book market is very volatile and it's unpredictable. And so in general, they want to go with safe safer choices. Yes, it does feel like that, actually. I mean, I mean, despite Amy Tan and Lisa C, even though the market feels somewhat primed for a certain kind of story, it feels like it's still difficult for these stories to get out there. And I'm, I'm probably going to get called out for this, but I keep thinking there are more stories surrounding Asian women than there are surrounding Asian men, as in fiction coming out of the West. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's right or if just if that's just what I'm reading. Well, I don't know. It's sort of like chicken and egg, you know. Is it because um, women in North America, be, you know, have been attracted to stories about women in Asia because there is, um, there's always this theme of oppression, of um, having lives controlled by men. And so it's easier to find sympathetic characters. And so that has created a market. And plenty of conflict as well. Yes. And, and plenty of conflict. One of the stranger dynamics that, um, I became aware of was uh, when my my um, agent was trying to sell Three Souls, and you know, and my agent is American and I'm Canadian. And she came back to me and she said, "Well, I was talking to this publisher, and they said, well, we're not sure because the author is Canadian." And I said, "The story is set in China. What does it matter?" But I don't know if it's a valid concern or if that's just one of the excuses that they want to use for turning turning down something that they don't feel they can market. So you it's, should it's have been like, send them my photo. I look Asian. <laughs> yes, and I live in Vancouver, which is the most Asian city outside <laughs> right. of Asia. 
You've got yeah. some of the best Chinese restaurants in the world. Come over and I'll take you around. <laughs> uh, okay, talk to me about this. And this is something that kills my soul a little every time I see it. And and I'm sure it must kill your soul a little too. But talk to me about the need for italics in your in your prose every time you use an Asian word or a Chinese word. I mean, it, it kills me that Michael Shabon can write a book called The Yiddish Policeman's Union and not have a single <laughs> word italicized, even though nobody outside of a small niche Jewish community would understand any of those phrases. You know, to me, the italics um, are to prevent people from thinking there was a typo. <laughs> <laughs> And my um, and for this one, I mean, fox, the fox spirit also speaks, and it's a slightly different type font, because I, you know, I discussed that with my editor, and she said she really hated italics. I said, but you know, but she understood the reason why, you know, I wanted something a little bit different to show that this is fox talking. Um, but in that context, it's because when the fox spirit talks, you're never quite sure if she's vocalizing or if she is in someone's mind. So um, hence the italics there. Um, it's, you know what? It's, it's not as painful to me, Uma, as um, cover designs where they want oh, it yes. to look really yeah. Chinese, like, okay, bamboo font. <laughs> That's what kills me. <laughs> The first time they asked me, you know, well, you know, we're thinking of getting your um, putting together design for your book. Do you have any preferences? What's your favorite color? And I said, here's the things I like. And if you use bamboo fonts, I will totally kill you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's interesting because there's, a, there's another new book that's come out by uh, a Singaporean author who lives in New York called Cheryl Tan. Mm -hmm. And it's called Sarong Party Girls. And okay. it's set in Singapore, and um, it's essentially about a subculture who are called Sarong Party Girls. And the entire book is is written in a kind of Singlish. It's a derivative mm. of Singaporean English, right? And right. what's interesting is the book in no way reflects the cover, which makes it look somewhat chicklitish. Mm -hmm. But of course, that was the only way they felt they could sell the book. And I know I know Cheryl very well, and I think it killed her as well. You're right. Cover design, when you browse that shelf in any bookstore that is Asian literature or I think I think I think Japanese literature has successfully moved away from it. Mm. But Southeast Asian literature and I guess Chinese literature, yeah, they keep going back to that damn bamboo font. Well, see, like if I were to write something and there was Chinglish, the way that I talk to my brothers, for example, right, I would yeah. not, I would not italicize because to me that's just the way we talk, and it is in a context that would that should be clear to anyone who's, you know, not a Mandarin-speaking person, and I think that context is is everything. Um, I actually recently wrote a blog about. Um, what happens with anachronisms when you're writing about a period in time um, uh, that's not familiar to your 
not target audience, but to the bulk of your audience. And I sort of came to a screeching halt at one point when I realized that, you know, having been raised in Western traditions of literature, you know, I could not, I could not have my characters who were in, you know, like 1930s China um, use expressions that were derived from Shakespeare or Dickens or Greek and Roman mythology, you know, all of those and this entire toolbox of metaphors were no longer available to me. And at the same time, I couldn't really start sprinkling in quotes from Tang Dynasty poems because that would be completely not under, you know, I know, unrelatable to um, Western audiences. So whatever you drip in there to create that sense of setting has to be done in a way um, that's relatable and in context. Yeah, that sounds... That sounds like absolute hell, if only because you have to completely remove yourself from contemporary lingo. Yes. Um, and, you know, there's, there's also things such as you can, you can ask someone, well, what is the slang for such and such? And then you have to ask, is this recent slang or would this have been slang they used in the 1920s? You don't you like this is the equivalent of you don't say dude in a historical novel. Exactly. You know, in set. <laughs> I don't think Shakespeare ever used dude. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm, I'm curious though about these stories and getting these stories out there. From what you're saying, it doesn't seem like there is a general apathy or aversion to them. I know so much is dictated by market forces. Um, do you think there are enough people writing them? I think there are plenty of people writing them. So, for example, in Vancouver, which has a huge um, Asian population, um, I go to literary events and I meet authors, Asian authors, who are doing wonderful work. Um, but I think the problem, again, is do their publishers have the marketing budget to promote more than a few of their featured authors? It's a question of discovery. And so we have a problem with discovery. And you also know that the number of book reviewers in the major newspapers and magazines um, you know, have really dropped in recent years. So again, the number of venues for discovery um, you know, are also much fewer. Well, and, the sheer number yeah. of pages dedicated to literature has dropped significantly across the board. Mm -hmm. You know, and I know that it's it's very, it can be very um, despondent making for authors when you look at the numbers that there are 50,000 new titles every year out of the U.S. and out of Canada, I don't know, maybe 20,000 new titles. Plus, your book is also there with all, you know, titles from previous years that people haven't read. So, you know, the fact that I get that Dragon Springs Road is being listed in book bubs, you know, best historical fiction in 2017, to me, that's an amazing coup already, right? Um, there, there's just two, there, there's a lot, there's a lot of good writing out there. No, but you're right. It, it becomes an exercise in marketing and pushing and getting the word out. And I think that's, I guess that's where you come in as well, because the author's work for a long time now has no longer just stopped when the words, the end are sprawled across the screen or across the page. 
Wow. So if you really want to go down that path, it's a huge Pandora's box of, <laughs> of you know, what are the, what's the logistics and what's the work and the emotional turmoil that Correct. you go through. And I just feel that after a couple of years of being in this industry, I'm not sure that there's anything an author can do by themselves to move the dial on book sales. I think you can, you know, you can do your social media, you can write um, guest blogs, you can hope that your publicists um, do their best for you. Um, you can work with local bookstores for events and get into literary uh, festivals and so on. But I, but I think it's, um, if luck is opportunity meeting preparation, all you can do is the preparation and hope that the opportunity comes along. The stories about, you know, um, debut authors um, who, you know, have a breakout novel with their very, very first book or, or books that suddenly skyrocket in, into the bestseller list, you know, that's like the top 0.01%, um, and they are the most visible, right? So you people think that it's easier than it really is. Well, here's hoping, here's hoping that, coming on a radio show all the way out here in Malaysia would beat you having to drive around with two boxes of books in your trunk. <laughs> in the snow. In the snow. In the snow. Uh, JD, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me today. Okay. It's been a pleasure, Uma. Thank you. That was Janie Chang. Dragon Springs Road is out next week and you'll be able to find it at all good bookstores. Until then, however, I urge you to go check out her first novel, Three Souls, which is this magnificent read that brings together history, revenge, forbidden love, and of course, the supernatural. You've been listening to Bookmark on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.